we might express hearts of adoration for you. We have not come to build a, a church. We have not come to expand a ministry. We have come to worship. We have come to lay before you hearts that are full of praise and, and gladness because we have found you to be a God of all grace, a God of all mercy. You have provided a salvation that is exactly what sinners such as we longed for. It is not only what we longed for, O oh God, it is what we needed. It is designed to meet our every spiritual need that eternally we have been forgiven, that one day we will stand in your presence clothed in the righteousness of another and be received and accepted as sons and daughters of a, of a God who first made us and then redeemed us in Christ Jesus. This same salvation is that which has provided hope. It has provided encouragements for us to, to live in a world that cares not for the things that we care for. And I pray, O oh God, that more and more we will find ourselves longing for those things heavenly, having discovered that those things temporal are dry as dust, that what we thought would once meet our needs didn't. And now we have discovered that those things that are designed to, to bring rich, profound, lasting joy are, things that, are those, those things that come from heaven. Our Father, um, this is a congregation that has been riddled with some very serious diseases and even death. And I pray, O oh God, that you will strengthen us as we battle the the failings of body. I pray that you might uh, enable us to be more than conquerors, even in the midst of some pretty serious stuff. Thank you for the, the first reports out of Nashville with Carol, and pray that you'll continue to undergird her. And thank you for the encouraging reports from Jeff Mounts. We continue to pray for the Tilson family. And Father, those are just the tip of the iceberg others who wrestle in this room and wonder whether they'll ever enjoy the kind of health that they've loved. Equip us, O oh God, to persevere. Father, we love this season. This is our time of year where even in the malls they sing about our Savior. And we pray, Father, that somehow this small congregation might be used of you to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Thank you for opportunities to give. It's our pleasure. We don't give, oh God, because there is duty. We give because we have been so enriched. It is our delight to be able to give just a portion to express that we do trust you and we love you. And we ask, oh God, that our gifts, every dime of them, will be used for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen. Thank you. The Gospel according to Luke. And we'll read for the final time this masterpiece known as the prodigal son. While you're finding that, I, I just want to mention, I, I, want, I, I neglected, Jimmy did tell you about next Sunday night, um, a great evening, fun evening, uh, and we did this last year and it was a, it was a smash. Um, we, we set up a camera in the Betty Ann's room and 
and took family Christmas photos. So if you haven't gotten one of those made, we don't charge a dime. It's just, and some of them just work wonderful. So if you want to bring your family, get your picture made for your Christmas cards and all that business. Um, next Sunday night, and then there's a dinner afterwards. It's a fun evening. I want to read you the whole parable once again. This is our last uh, episode in uh, the life of the prodigal son. So let's begin at verse 11, and you follow as I read. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when we mention the name, the parable of the prodigal son, that's what people think of. The portion of the parable that I have just read. The parable takes on a whole other, another dimension beginning in verse 25. And it is just as vital to our understanding of the parable as is the first um, 14 verses. This is the dimension concerning the elder brother. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed a fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you, and I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I have one final observation to make concerning this parable and specifically the elder brother, and I've saved it for last. Um, I guess I saved it because it's really a pet peeve of mine. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to call it a pet peeve, 
really cheapens the point that I, I want to make this morning. It, it, to call it a pet peeve is suggesting that this is, this is somewhat of a personal opinion of mine, and, and uh, it's a kind of an individualized issue. And, and, and please trust me, ladies and gentlemen, the, the observation that I want to make this morning is far more important than any personal opinion that I may have about it. There is a lot surrounding this final issue uh, in the parable of the prodigal son. To, uh, before we get to that observation, let me, let me just remind you quickly of some territory that we've already covered. You may remember when we started this study uh, of the prodigal son, I told you then that this was not a parable about one son. Uh, it was not a parable about two sons. It was a parable about the father. If you'll note, the parable begins with these words, a certain man had two sons. It doesn't begin by saying, there was a young man who had a father and a brother. From the very outset of this parable, the spotlight is placed on the father. And then I went on to say that um, this, this parable is a parable about grace. And there is a sense in which, ladies and gentlemen, the message about the younger son is the same message that the parable, uh, the, the message about the older son. It's one and the same message. Because fundamentally, this is a parable about grace. Every syllable of it. It is a masterpiece on grace. I, I say all of that um, to say this. As we come to this, this final observation concerning the elder brother, my hope is that as we finish up this parable, that you will have a crystal clear grasp of grace. If I, I could state it a, a, a bit differently, my friends, if we understand the error of the elder brother, then we will better understand the father. And if we understand better the father, we will understand grace far better. Now, that brings me to the observation, and I, I, I want to assure you it's certainly not rocket science. It's not a very difficult observation to make. It's not a very difficult one to see. And perhaps you've already walked away with this observation, but here it is. The elder brother has a concept of what it means to be rightly related to the father. The elder brother thinks that he understands what it is that will ultimately please his father. He has a concept of how this is all supposed to work. When it comes to rightly relating to the father, he thinks he understands. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the elder brother's understanding and concept of the father is completely wrong. The elder brother assumes that as long as he performs well, and as long as he lines up uh, with certain standards, and he plays by certain rules, and he does certain things in a certain way, that the father will be delighted and all will be well. And, and in that, ladies and gentlemen, what you have is, a, is, a, is an enormous illustration 
of a religion that is, that is held by the majority. Gang, um, if you stop and interview the, the average man on the street and ask him what is his concept of Christianity, he will invariably associate Christianity with some kind of behavior. He may even mention the Ten Commandments or the teachings of Jesus or what have you. But the religion, ladies and gentlemen, of, of, of the majority of mankind is an understanding that is exactly like that of the elder brother. They conclude that religion is to be understood in terms of some kind of outward conformity. For them, it's a morality. It's an ethic. It's a, and and if, I, if I perform the ethic, then all is going to be well between me and God. For, for them, what's really important is a lifestyle. A lifestyle that coincides with that external code of conduct that they've adopted. And for them, that is considered healthy a healthy relationship to the Father. And it consists entirely, ladies and gentlemen, of, in the words of the parable, never transgressing your commandment at any time. That is their fundamental grasp of what it means to be rightly related to the Father. If I simply do that, He's going to be pleased. Everything's going to be happy. Everything's going to, and we'll settle down, and I'll live in the house forever. All of spiritual life can be gauged by how well one succeeds in towing the line. And for the different religions, the line is different. But the fundamental concept is, if I simply tow the line and do and live and obey and, and, and adopt a certain morality, then, then the Father will be very pleased with me. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, you, you must understand, you, you, you can almost excuse the elder brother for thinking this way, because surely you know that every other religion is exactly that. Boil them all down, ladies and gentlemen. And they're all saying to their adherents, if all is going to work out for you eternally, you're going to have to live a certain lifestyle that will make God happy and then he'll accept you. Only Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, only Christianity stands opposed to that kind of understanding and concept and mentality. The elder brother thinks like some of you think, perhaps. But if not you, certainly your neighbors. They're convinced that if I just keep my nose clean and I um, do this or that or the other, when it's all over, it'll, it'll shake down for me good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the religion of the elder brother. It is also the religion of masses. Now, with my remaining 20 minutes, I want to do two things. 
the first thing that I want to do is, is tell you this. Surely you understand by now. Surely, surely you, you, you see that such an approach is wrong. If you have not yet seen it, then let me say it one more time, and I'll, I'll say it briefly. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. None of us deserve heaven. None of us can be good enough to merit entrance into heaven. And you know, the, the, um, the frightening thing is that those things that we think are such good works, do you know what the Bible calls them? It has a term for it. Those things that we thought would be the very things on which we would build a relationship with the Father. The Bible calls those things that we think are very good and we're very proud of, the Bible calls them filthy rags. So I plead with you, give up. Give up such a silly attempt at earning at earning your admission into heaven. It will never succeed. And the very idea that your, that your performance will somehow impress God, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very great wickedness. It's nothing more than elder brotherism. The elder brother is the one who tells us and is angry at the father because the father wasn't Im duly impressed with all of his goodnesses. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is, that is elder brotherism and it will never succeed. Now, the second thing that I want to spend our time on is going to require that you shift gears with me. Okay? Lay that aside as we shift gears and head in another direction. Because, my friend, having said what I've already said, I by no means want to give you any kind of impression or want you to conclude that obedience to the Father's commands are not, is not important. Oh, yes, it is very important. Um, but the question that you must face is, why? Why do I obey? What is my motive? Now, gang, we know what the motive of the elder brother is. His motive is that he wanted to be rewarded for all of his performance. He was after that fatted calf. But the question before this house is not what his motive is. The question is, what is your motive? Why do you obey? The elder brother obeys, and the Christian obeys, and very often the elder brother obeys better than we do. But we know why he obeys. But why do you obey? Because the difference in those obediences, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be wrapped up in motive. 
It's going to be wrapped up in why or answering why. Gang, in Christianity, it is not only important what you do, it is extraordinarily important why you do it. I'm gonna, I want to give you two or three, maybe even more than that, illustrations trying to help you get your mind simply around that. Maybe it's already there. I hope it is. But let's take, let's take an issue. Let's take an issue of the, the one I, I, mean, I started to use tithing. I thought, no, I don't use that one. Let's take Bible study. Okay? Everybody agrees that Bible study is a good thing. All right? If you've got your Bible still open, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 1. All of us agree that Bible study is a good thing. You know, we, we certainly need to have our QT. That's quiet time. Now, um, but why? Why, why, are we to, why should we be interested in such a thing? Well, let me read you two verses from Psalm 1. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, gang, do you see what those two simple verses say? Man, it sure is good if you stay out of that path. <laughs> don't go that path. Don't go there. Don't do this. Blessed is the man that stays away from the counsel of the ungodly. So uh, what would assist us in our so doing? Well, it might be good to know what path we ought to be on. How am I going to find that out? So ladies and gentlemen, tell me this. We all agree that Bible study is a good thing. I want to know why. Is it because you Christians are supposed to have quiet time? Or is his law your delight? You see, in the, in the mind of the psalmist, God is not pictured as a taskmaster. He is not pictured as a business manager or some kind of boss. But what pleases this God is when you and I sit down in front of his word and say, you know, the thing I need more than anything is to know you. And I'm not here because of duty. I'm not here because of oughtness. I am here because this thing is my delight. Now, anything short of that, ladies and gentlemen, one I think has to at least ask. Why? Why am I doing this? Um, you see, gang, I think the bottom line is God is after not simply good performance. He's after your heart. Let me tell you another story. This is a story that Philip Yancey told, and I thought um, he tells a story about one summer while he was in graduate school that he had to learn the German language. And uh, so, five nights a week, three hours a night, he sat with a Kaipo master, a tutor, who taught him how to parse Greek verbs. 
He said, while I was sitting in, in these wonderful summer nights, all of my friends were sailing the Lake Michigan, uh, bicycling, uh, riding their bicycles, and drinking cappuccinos at some kind of patio cafe. But no, no, I, I was in there learning German because I had to learn German because I had to pass the test so that I could get my degree. Now, gang, um, there's a lot of good reasons to learn German. I mean, uh, you, it uh, expands the mind, it gives you a larger range of communication. Um, but the only motivation that Philip Yancey had was, uh, I've got to learn this so I can pass the test so I can get the degree. And he said at the end of three years he had passed the test, but doesn't remember any German. And then he asked this question. He said, what would make me, what would make me really learn German quickly? He said, um, well, what if I were to fall in love with a woman who only spoke German? Then, <laughs> you know, then I'd be parsing those Greek verbs so that I could put them in love letters. Then I would glory in any addition to my vocabulary because it would give me a one other way to express things to this woman that I loved. Now, now, surely you can see the difference in those. One is engaged, or one has engaged the heart. The other, I'm grinding this out. Ladies and gentlemen, what characterizes your concept of your relationship to the Father. Well, he tells me I'm supposed to study my Bible. And you know why you go to church, don't you? Because they're going to give you a pin for perfect attendance. D do you understand? That, ladies and gentlemen, is an elder brother streak in you. What God is after is not so much performance. Oh, he's after performance. But performance that grows out of a heart overcome by grace. Let me show you one other, which I hope will continue to illustrate the point I'm trying to make. Oh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. This is one of my favorite verses. I'm going to write a book about this verse one day. Luke chapter 11. Verse 42. It begins, notice how it begins. Woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you guys. You tithe mint and rue and all matter of herbs. Now, you know what that means. I mean, that, that shouldn't be difficult, but in case you missed you, what, what, what the Pharisee would do is that he would get a stalk of mint. Do you raise mint in the backyard? We have mint in our backyard. But, I mean, uh, he would raise mint, and he would have a stalk, and it had, let's say, 30 leaves on the stalk. So he'd say, well, okay, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 30 leaves. Three of those are God's. So he'd pick off three leaves, and he'd, give, he'd donate them to the priest. And uh, they'd tie the mint and the rue and all the herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. Now notice what he says next. These you ought to have done. He doesn't say, oh, stop that tithing of the mint and the rue and the common and all the herbs. He doesn't say that. 
he says, oh yeah, you should do that. But it should be the result of some kind of stimulated heart in your love of him. You ignore all those heart issues. But you really do the right things. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this parable of the prodigal son is not designed to assure prodigals. It is a parable written to Pharisees. I told you that the very first time we started. It is a parable of warning. It's a warning to good people. And you're good people. It's a warning to us, ladies and gentlemen. And the warning is this. Nothing, nothing comes between you and God quicker than your morality. Nothing will be such a false sense of security like decency and respectability. And nothing will harden you quicker than a life lived never transgressing any of the commandments. And ladies and gentlemen, the elder brother is angry about that. So is every Pharisee. Moral people are always offended by this message. But sinners flock to it. I don't blame them for being angry. What Jesus has said is, you know, fellas, you think you understand things and your behavior is not, very, not, not bad, but you know what? You understand nothing. You have completely missed it. And then he goes on to tell them that the ones that are really accepted by the Father, the ones that really find a place in the Father's house, are ones who come with a yielded heart, even those notorious, rotten, wretched, horrible sinners. Those people overcome by God's grace and mercy who find it their utter delight to express love for this God in lives that are obedient. And that message, ladies and gentlemen, is hated by every elder brother. Moralism, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't like to be told that moralism for moralism's sake, is worthless when it comes to eternal matters. Uh, maybe I should throw this in. You know, um, if I have to choose between honesty and dishonesty, I'll choose honesty every time. I, I think I told you about the time I saw the ad in the newspaper that said, honesty is the best policy. At the bottom of the sheet, it said, it is also the most profitable. 
gang, if I ever buy something from you, I hope you're honest with me. And I'll appreciate your honesty. But I hope you won't miss this. It will not get you anywhere. In terms of your relationship to God, unless it springs from a heart engaged in love of the living God. I want to read you something that came out of a book. The book was entitled Ordinary Times. It was written by Nancy Mayers. And in the book, she tells um, of her childhood, which was basically consisting in a lifetime of mutiny against this God who had provided for her some kind of list of prescriptions and prohibitions. And um, she, she writes about her early uh, relationship to this God, and she says this. Um, the fact that these, and when she says these, she's talking about that list of do's and don'ts. The fact that these took their most basic form as commandments suggested that human nature had to be forced into goodness. Left to its own devices, it would prefer idols, profanity, leisurely Sunday mornings with bagels in the New York Times, disrespect for authority, murder, adultery, theft, lies, and everything belonging to the guy next door. I was forever on the perilous verge of doing a don't to atone for which I had to beg forgiveness from the very being who had set me up for trespass by forbidding behaviors he clearly expected me to commit. I knew him as the God of the gotcha. She talked about how often she broke those rules and how she lived a life constantly overcome with guilt. And then she says, and I quote, she lived a life overcome with guilt until, and I'm quoting, until I learned to thrive in the care of a God who asks for the single act that will make transgression impossible. Love. Isn't that great? I'm going to read it to you one more time. She said, I, I, I lived with guilt all of my life until I understood, until I learned to thrive in the care of a God who asks for the single act that will make transgression impossible. Love. I have one other thing for you to think about, and then I'll wrap this up. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, if your whole understanding of a relationship with the Father is that similar to the elder brother? I want you to know that fundamentally you have a very low view of God. Let, let me explain. You see, the, the elder brother didn't like all this stuff that he was doing. He did it grudgingly, but he did it. And then when he was opposed, he gets angry, etc. The, the point is, I can't help but conclude that in the, in the mind of the elder brother is an idea that the reason that this God has given me all these rules is because he's some kind of cranky old judge that wants to give me a list of things that I can't do so that he can steal all my fun. Instead of viewing those things that he has asked of me as almost a list of dangers that he wants me to avoid so that I won't get hurt. You see the difference? You see, to say that this is how God operates, that he expects me to go get busy out in his fields. 
is a very low view of God. Because what he has me to do in those fields, I don't like. And it's just there because he doesn't want me to have any fun. Ladies and gentlemen, this parable, much unlike a fairy tale, it concludes with no happy ending. There's no sense of resolution. The story ends with the elder brother standing outside in the field talking to his father while the party is going on inside. Will he go in? We're not told. Jesus leaves it that way, and I think he does it for a purpose. He leaves it that way because it's up to each one of us to finish this story. A story about a God who goes searching for me and will not rest until he finds me. And then when he fi finds me, looks at me and says, come in, come home, both of you. And of course, the hardest person to get to come in was the one who lived so close to him. My friends, it is up to each one of us to decide whether we will stand out in the field indignant, all alone and wrong? Or will we set that aside and go into the place where there's a party going on and take our seat at the table next to all kinds of scoundrels and reckless sinners and saints who are united by one thing, their relationship to that father. A father who refuses to give me the love that I think I deserve, but cannot be prevented from giving me the love that I need. It's a story, ladies and gentlemen. And the ending will be written by each one of us. Our Father, I pray that uh, what has been said in these weeks is perfectly in accord with your word. If I have said things here, O oh God, that are, that are not accurate, I pray that the people, the ears of your people will be stopped up not to hear a word. But Father, if what has been spoken is true, I pray that they will, it will rankle around in our hearts in such measure that we will never again commit the mistake of the elder brother nor would we ever dream of heading off to some faraway country. Might we find our greatest delight with our heads buried in the bosom of the Father. That, O oh God, is our only place of safety. And it is, for oh so many of us, the place of our greatest delight. We make our prayer, of course. In Jesus' name, amen.